You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, January 20th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, You versus Your Bones from AARP Magazine. And Science Reveals the Link Between Gut Health and Exercise Motivation from Medscape. Plus, Why Ultra-Processed Foods Are So Bad for You from Time. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. You versus your bones. Our bones are very supportive until they're not. Here's how to keep an eye on them by Barbara Hannah Grufferman from AARP Magazine. I got my wake-up call about bone health 15 years ago. I was enjoying a stroll around my neighborhood with my dog, Gunther, when I tripped over a crack in the sidewalk. As I fell, I thrust my right hand forward, and when I hit the ground, the pain and swelling in my wrist were immediate. After five decades, I had broken my first bone. That incident gave me a crash course in bone health. First, I was sent for a bone density test, which revealed that my bones had thinned to the point of osteopenia. Think of it as a precursor to osteoporosis, not unlike prediabetes is to diabetes. Then, a blood test showed that my vitamin D levels were extremely low, which doctors told me was making it hard for my bones to access the calcium they so desperately needed. Suddenly, without a prior clue, I discovered I was on the express train to osteoporosis. A few years later, I received a second wake-up call. My mother, then 82, fell while in her bathroom in Virginia Beach. Luckily, my family was visiting her for the holidays, and we were able to help right away. But the fall resulted in a serious hip fracture, which is how we learned that she had developed osteoporosis. Despite having emergency surgery, she was never the same. Previously, she'd been completely mobile, but from then on, she had to use a wheelchair. She needed help with routine tasks, such as going to the bathroom and showering, and had to move out of her home and into an assisted living facility. As she lost her mobility and independence, her overall health declined quickly. Within just the next year or so, she developed heart failure, Parkinson's disease, and type 2 diabetes, and began showing signs of depression. Without physical activity, she lost muscle mass, so she fell even more. She passed away a little more than three years after her initial fall. Her experience wasn't unusual. Of the nearly 300,000 people in the U.S. who fracture a hip every year, a quarter end up in nursing homes and half never regain their previous function. That first injury often sets off a cascade of health problems. 30% of Medicare patients who fracture a hip will die within a year. Most of us have an out-of-sight, out-of-mind relationship with our bones. We know they're there to support us, and we know they're vital to our health and mobility. But we don't really think about them until they start to let us down. And when they do, the effect on our health can be devastating. Get smart. Become a bonehead. 
Inspired by these incidents, I immersed myself in the science of bone health, even joining the board of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, or BHOF, formerly the National Osteoporosis Foundation. The nation's leading organization devoted to the prevention and treatment of osteoporosis, other bone diseases, and broken bones, BHOF is led by an amazing team of researchers and clinicians who affectionately call themselves boneheads. They've taught me a lot about bone health and inspired me to make some crucial lifestyle changes. I've learned that bones aren't truly solid, but are made up of an intricate honeycomb of collagen and minerals, especially calcium, as well as living bone cells, which are constantly adding new material and removing old. When you're young, you form bone faster than you lose it, so you grow taller and your bones continue getting denser until, in your 20s, you reach peak bone mass, when you have the most bone tissue you'll ever have. After that, you start losing bone faster than you can build new tissue. In women, the hormone estrogen helps activate bone cells to make new bone. In men, testosterone can be turned into estrogen to do the same job. Of course, estrogen levels drop as women undergo menopause, so from that time on, there's less new bone being formed. Men also experience a slowdown in bone growth as they age. Bone is still being removed, so there's a net loss. The rate of net bone loss is normally very slow, but if you lose too much bone density, your bones become weak and brittle, a condition known as osteopenia, which means low bone density. More serious bone loss is called osteoporosis, which means porous bones. People with severe osteoporosis can break bones just by sneezing or even hugging. Obviously, the better you built up your bones when you were younger, the more of a reserve you'll have as you age. But you can still build bone after 50. That means you may be able to slow or even stop net bone loss before you get into the danger zone. The best news? It's not so hard to do. Physical activity, especially weight-bearing and resistance exercises, can boost bone density by triggering new bone growth. Eating a balanced diet and getting plenty of calcium and vitamin D can help slow bone loss and give your bones what they need to keep building new tissue. Conversely, there are factors that speed bone decline. Some are within your control, such as smoking, drinking alcohol, and extreme dieting. Others are not in your control, but do raise your risk for osteopenia and osteoporosis, so you need to be aware of them, too. Age. As you age, your body tends to lose some bone density. Osteoporosis, however, is not inevitable, and it can be slowed or halted with simple steps. Gender. Women are four times as likely to develop osteoporosis as men are, and about half of women and a quarter of men over age 50 will break a bone because of osteopenia or osteoporosis. Menopause. This is when bone loss sets in with a vengeance. And women lose the most bone, up to 20%, during the first 10 years after menopause, notes Margaret Nactagal, MD, a reproductive endocrinologist and clinical associate professor at NYU Langone Health and a founding member of the North American Menopause Society. She says it may be appropriate for women at an increased risk for osteoporosis to consider hormone therapy, or HT, 
during menopause. Hormone treatment can help activate bone growth cells and therefore help restore bone or prevent bone loss, she explains. But although she says HT may be beneficial for some women, she cautions that it isn't for everyone. So discuss your situation with your health care provider. Breast cancer. Fragile bones and fractures are more common in women who have been treated for breast cancer, partly because breast cancer treatment may trigger early menopause, says nurse practitioner Eva E. Myers of the National Breast Cancer Foundation Medical Advisory Council. Family history. Studies have indicated that a family history of osteoporosis suggests that you're also at higher risk for the disease, especially if a parent has had a hip fracture. A look at literature focusing on twins and families shows that between 25 and 85 percent of the variation in bone mass and other skeletal traits is inherited, but the why behind this continues to be studied. Body type. The thinner you are, the thinner your bones are, and the higher your risk for fracture is. While a healthy body mass index is often better at lowering risk for certain health issues, such as type 2 diabetes, it seems that a higher BMI protects both women and men against osteoporosis. According to Nactagal, having more weight to carry around helps keep bones dense, and having a very low BMI is considered a risk for bone loss. It's important to understand your risk and to get bone density tests as recommended because bone disease is silent. Well, mostly. When I took my tumble, I had several risk factors for bone disease. I'm a woman. I was over 50. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't paying attention to my vitamin or mineral intake. I had gone through menopause and wasn't taking any form of hormone therapy, so my estrogen levels were low, low, low. Despite all those risks, until I experienced my fracture, no doctor had ever recommended a bone density test. Bone density, the concentration of minerals in your bones, is easy to check with a special x-ray called a DEXA scan. BHOF recommends DEXA testing for anyone 50 and older who has broken a bone or has risk factors for osteoporosis and for women 65 and older and men 70 and older, regardless of risk factors. If that's you, talk with your doctor about getting a bone scan as part of your next overall checkup. Weakening Signals Osteoporosis is called a silent disease, but it's not entirely silent, says Andrea Singer, MD, of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. These are some subtle signs that might mean you need a bone check. 1. You're getting shorter. Losing height is one of the most common signs that your spine might be shrinking. Measure yourself annually so you can spot this early. 2. Unexplained back and neck pain. Back pain could have many causes, including a compression fracture or collapsed vertebra in your spine. 3. Poor posture. If you feel uncomfortable when standing straight or notice a hunch in your upper back, it could be a sign of spinal bone loss or fracture. 4. Shortness of breath. If your spine is starting to compress because of bone loss or fracture, your lung capacity may be reduced. Shortness of breath can be a symptom of several other serious issues, too. Always get it checked. 5. Brittle fingernails. 
Nails that break easily might indicate you don't have enough collagen in your diet. If your nails have vertical ridges, this could mean you're not getting enough calcium from what you eat or drink, or your body may not be properly absorbing calcium. Six, GI issues. Bone loss is connected to several gastrointestinal conditions, such as celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease, both of which can inhibit nutrition absorption. In addition, some GI issues require treatment with steroids, which also lowers bone density. Seven, dental issues. Tooth loss can be a sign of bone loss in the jaw area and may additionally indicate bone loss and decreased bone density in other areas of the body. Pay close attention to this sign if you're losing teeth too easily. Eight, weaker grip strength. Having low grip strength is associated with a decrease in muscle strength, an increase in frailty, and a heightened risk of falling and fracturing bones. Grip strength can be easily measured in a doctor's office or at home with a simple tool called a hand dynamometer. Nine, weight loss. Being a cereal dieter or losing significant weight or having rapid weight loss increases your risk for bone loss. Ten. Broken bones, the most obvious signal of all. Fracturing a bone is a pretty clear sign that your bones are getting weaker. The dope on vitamin D. Vitamin D has long been recommended to keep bones strong, but a recent study questioning that approach has gotten a lot of media attention. Bottom line: many other studies have shown that D is an important vitamin for helping bone formation, says Margaret Nactagal, M.D. of NYU Langone Health. I will continue to recommend vitamin D to my patients and will continue to take vitamin D personally, she says. Bonehead moves. Combining weight-bearing exercises with strength training and balance exercises is key for bone health, says Karen Chemis, a physical therapist and registered nurse at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Speak to your doctor before starting any new program. Weight-bearing exercises. With these activities, you're moving against gravity while holding yourself upright. Examples are hiking, dancing, or playing pickleball. High-impact workouts such as running or jumping rope offer the biggest bone boost. But if you already have osteoporosis, stick with a lower-impact exercise such as walking. Aim for at least 30 minutes per day, at least five days per week. Resistance exercises, also called strength training, these movements work against gravity using weights, exercise bands, or your own body. One good option is this trio of exercises, which works the entire body: push-ups, squats, and planks. Do these at least three days per week. For a bigger challenge, hold dumbbells or free weights when doing the squats. Balance exercises: maintaining your balance can help prevent falls. Tai Chi is an excellent choice for helping build balance, but you can also develop it in other ways. Stand on one foot for thirty seconds and balance, then switch. Stand next to a sturdy piece of furniture in case you need to steady yourself, or walk down a hallway as if on a tightrope, trying not to touch the wall for support. Up next, science reveals link between gut health and exercise motivation, by Denny Watkins from WebMD. 
Could gut health be behind a person's motivation or lack thereof to exercise? Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania recently explored this topic when they wanted to find out why some lab mice seem to love their exercise wheel while others mostly ignore it. To start, the researchers used a machine learning algorithm to look for biological traits that could explain the differences in activity levels among mice, and what they found surprised them. Genetics seemed to have little to do with it, but differences in gut bacteria appeared to matter more. A handful of studies backed that up. Thriving gut microbiomes have been linked with optimal muscle function in mice. Sure enough, when the researchers dosed mice with broad-spectrum antibiotics, killing off their gut bacteria, the distance the rodents were able to run dropped by half. But off the antibiotics, the mice mostly regained their previous performance levels. The findings published in the journal Nature suggest that the gut microbiome may help regulate the desire to exercise. If confirmed in humans, this hypothesis could help explain why so many Americans, about half, failed to get the recommended amount of physical activity. Some may blame lack of time, energy, or interest, but perhaps the reason could come down to the trillions of microbes living in their gut. This line of research could also lead to microbiome-based ways to get sedentary people off the couch or optimize athletic performance. But how could one's microbiome impact the motivation to move? To find the answer, the researchers zeroed in on the brain. The Gut-Brain Connection After treating the mice with antibiotics, the researchers sequenced RNA in the rodent's striatum, the part of the brain responsible for motivation. They found reduced gene expression in the cell's dopamine receptors, which released the neurochemical dopamine, making one feel like they've accomplished something good. In other words, mice treated with antibiotics were getting less of a dopamine hit after their run. Only when we started focusing on the brain did we understand that the microbiome's effect on exercise capacity was mediated by the central and peripheral nervous systems, says study author Christoph Thais, Ph.D., a microbiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. This realization completely changed the trajectory of the project, he says. The gut-brain pathway may have evolved to couple the initiation of prolonged physical activity to the nutritional status of the gastrointestinal tract, Thais says. Gut bacteria monitor what's in your colon and tell your brain whether you have enough food to fuel a workout. The researchers say there are so many possibilities for how these signals may change physiology and impact health. A new set of studies may well establish a whole new branch of exercise physiology, they say. Up next, Why Ultra-Processed Foods Are So Bad For You, by Tara Law from Time. Most people recognize that a nutritious diet promotes a healthy life, but navigating the wide range of options at your grocery store isn't always straightforward, especially when so many foods are advertised as healthy but aren't. A growing number of recent studies have raised health concerns about a certain type of food that most Americans eat, ultra-processed foods. One such study, published in November in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, concluded that these foods likely contributed to about 10% of deaths among people ages 30 to 69 in Brazil in 2019. 
Other studies, including one published in the journal Neurology in July, finding that a 10% increase in ultra-processed food consumption raises the risk of dementia, have linked the food category to severe health outcomes. Unlike minimally processed food or unprocessed foods, like eggs, for example, which travel from the farm to your kitchen looking pretty much the same, ultra-processed foods have been radically changed by manufacturers. By the time they hit your grocery shelf, they've likely been heated, pressed, and enhanced by additives designed to make them last longer, taste better, and appear more attractive, often to the detriment of your health. Here's what you need to know about ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods are made mostly or entirely from substances derived from foods and additives, write the authors of a 2017 commentary published in the journal Public Health Nutrition. These additives are ingredients not usually used in home cooking, like preservatives, dyes, and non-sugar sweeteners. This definition covers a wide range of foods in your local grocery store, from instant soup to packaged snacks to certain meat products, including sausages, burgers, and hot dogs. Such foods tend to have telltale signs, says Tim Spector, a professor in genetic epidemiology at King's College London and author of Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well. Typically, he says, they have a very long shelf life and 10 or more ingredients, which often include products that you wouldn't find in your kitchen or you can't understand, he says. They're distinct from how some nutrition researchers define processed or minimally processed foods. These foods tend to contain just two or three ingredients, usually a whole plant plus salt, sugar, or oil, and have often been preserved, cooked, or fermented. Some of these foods include canned fish, fruit in syrup, cheese, and fresh bread. But not all ultra-processed foods are equally unhealthy. Fang Fang Zhang, chair of the Division of Nutrition Epidemiology and Data Science at Tufts University, notes that whole grain, ultra-processed foods, like some packaged breads, are an important source of fiber for many people. Even with ultra-processed food, whole grains are a better choice than refined grain, says Zhang. Researchers at Northeastern University have also created a tool for comparing packaged foods in the same category in order to choose the one with the least amount of processing. For instance, in the yogurt category, one plain organic yogurt scored a 4 out of 100, a favorable score indicating a low amount of processing, while We Petite by YoPlay received a maximally processed score of 100. Why are ultra-processed foods so harmful? Longitudinal studies in the Americas and Europe have linked eating more ultra-processed food to a number of health risks, including increases in obesity, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and even dementia. Other research, including a pair of studies in the BMJ by researchers in Spain and France, has linked consuming ultra-processed foods to an increased risk of early death. Ultra-processed foods tend to be junk food, low in fiber and high in sugar and calories, says Zhang. But because ultra-processed foods are defined by the types of ingredients they contain, not by their nutrition content, this category can also include foods with beneficial nutrients like breads high in fiber. Scientists who research ultra-processed foods say there seems to be something about the processing itself, not just the nutrition content, that makes them unhealthy. 
In one 2019 study that supports this idea, researchers split 20 people into two groups and controlled what they ate for two weeks. Each group ate meals with identical quantities of calories, sugar, fat, fiber, and micronutrients, but one group ate a diet of ultra-processed food while the other ate unprocessed food. In the end, the people who ate ultra-processed food gained weight, while those who ate unprocessed food lost weight. How do I cut back on ultra-processed foods? Experts agree that reducing consumption of ultra-processed foods shouldn't be the public's responsibility alone. Many people don't live in communities with access to healthy, minimally processed food, which tends to be more expensive than ultra-processed food, say researchers. To reduce ultra-processed food, they argue, the government will need to implement policies to expand access to healthy food, such as by limiting the availability of ultra-processed food in schools. If you want to make your own diet healthier, researchers say a mindset change is key. We just need to get people thinking about food, not in a calorie way, and think about the quality, they say. If you want to reduce the number of ultra-processed foods you eat, they suggest opting for other foods that are cheap and don't take much preparation, like beans, lentils, and eggs. For snacks, they suggest nuts, seeds, and whole fruit. Try going off ultra-processed food for a week and see what happens, they say. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.
If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.